0: humans learn to do something once and then just kind of keep doing it, even if that's not the optimal thing to do. It's exactly the idea here as well. If you know kind of how to do the task and suddenly you find yourself out of distribution or I don't know what to do, Mm
1: -hmm. I kind of
0: want to get back to the states where I actually do know how to do it. Mm -hmm. and I just like reason my way there, whatever way possible, and then I'll finish the task. Uh So this is basically the same idea there as well, is that you kind of drive the agent towards this part of the state space where you know how to solve the task.
2: Hey there, I'm your host, Jun, and we are Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind the scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Today, we're talking to Archit Sharma, a PhD student at Stanford advised by Chelsea Finn. Archit's recent work is focused on autonomous deep reinforcement learning, that is getting real world robots to learn to deal with unseen situations without human intervention. Prior to this, he was an AI resident at Google Brain and he interned with Yashua Bengio at Mila. Welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to talk to you. How did you develop your initial research interests and then how have they evolved over time?
0: Thank you for having me here. I find myself very lucky because there's very few people who get to take the trajectory and be in a place as special as Stanford. So I find myself very lucky so It all started in, I did my undergraduate in IIT, Kanpur in India. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I was an electrical engineering major, but I was really intrigued by the developments of what was going on in machine learning. I remember this was back in the time like when I think image net performance, the human performance on ImageNet would was just superseded. So everybody was really, really excited by that, and I was like, "Wait, I want to be part of this as well, mm-hmm. and I want to see like where this takes us." Mm-hmm. So as a sophomore, like that's when I got interested in AI and machine learning, mm-hmm. and. Basically, like, just like everybody else, I took Andrew Ng's course on Coursera. I still remember we had to code an Octave, which is a different era, it seems like. But yeah, <laughs> that's where it started. And I think my interest was really solidified once I went to Montreal. I was very lucky to work with Yasha Benjio. We kind of started working on some stuff about learning how to backpropagate gradients. Mm. And I thought it was really intriguing. And I really liked the atmosphere in the lab there. It felt like everybody, what they were doing was very, like, everybody was excited about what they were doing. It seemed like there was a lot of interest generally. Things were always, like, moving fast. Mm. And that kind of just got me really excited about doing machine learning research. And after that internship, I feel like that's when I kind of knew I wanted to do this for a longer time. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) what year was that? This was after my junior year. So... Yeah, that was 2017. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: then when you were like, okay, I've decided I want to do machine learning research, like where did you kind of start? Like what topics were you interested in yeah. in the thing? I feel like
0: I've like had a bunch of jumps around as well. So initially I started doing deep learning. Deep learning almost has always been a central part of the research. So mm-hmm. I started doing like natural language processing and vision. I wrote on visual dialogue systems to begin with. But this was me as a sophomore, not like much. So, what's going on? Then I worked on some of this learning to learn kind of stuff. Towards my senior year, I started working more into like mathy stuff and probabilistic modeling and so on. This yeah. was where I started like being more technically precise about things. Yeah. Then I was very lucky to get an opportunity to do the Google AI residency, which is a program which allows people to like explore research directions and while being at Google and like using their computer skill and like having access to some of the best researchers. So, that is where I actually pivoted to doing a lot more reinforcement learning research.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I had no background in reinforcement learning research because I never took a course there as well. So I was like going through the papers. I remember going through a lot of rich, Sutton's book on this as well. And it's very, very self-driven. And that's where I actually ended up learning a lot about
2: it. How did you get interested in RL? Like why RL? I was
0: pretty interested in like, building like, the most general agent possible, mm. and to me, like reinforcement learning was maybe the only abstraction which offered the possibility for that because you need interaction if you're building an intelligent agent,
1: mm-hmm. yes.
0: and a lot of supervised learning systems are about this one-step interaction in some sense. Mm-hmm. So having like, modeling the consequences, long-term consequences of your actions. Seems like a crucial part of it. And to me, like reinforcement learning seemed like an exciting way are like interesting way to model that. Also everything that's related, I I'm trying to remember what results were there around at that time, but I think maybe Alpha goes was there around the time and all those exciting related results were also there. Mm-hmm. So like that has kept like the field very interesting. So mm-hmm. Starcraft, and maybe these are like some things which happened after, but there are a lot of interesting events happening in Deep RL at the time as well, which definitely got me excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Interesting, and so at Google, you were pivoting to RL research and reading Sutton and all of this stuff, learning RL. What happened then?
0: So yeah, as I was exploring this topic, I ended up working on a sub area within RL called unsupervised RL, mm-hmm. and To me, that was like, again, this was very, very much motivated from the idea of like how intelligent agents learn. And a big part of that is unsupervised learning. Mm -hmm. So I was very motivated by that. That's when I started looking at unsupervised Mm RR. And there I had this idea where we wanted to like think about what kind of behaviors like agents learn. And a lot of that is from a desire to like control your environment around you. So this is related to the environment hypothesis. It ended up like seeping into my work at the time. And we published this paper called DADS, which was about like learning behaviors which are both predictable and diverse. And this is completely unsupervised as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that kickstarted my research career in reinforcement learning. And I think I've been doing that ever since.
2: That's cool. That paper
3: has a bunch of citations. I, I feel like that's one of the more robust, sort of unsupervised RL networks that's out there.
2: Not that citations are a good proxy. For relevant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: saying it's not just a citation, but also, like it seems like it kind of works for other people, also. And it's kind of interesting that your very first kind of like real paper ended up being like used by people. Yeah, yeah useful, especially yeah. you no RL before at all. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was very like, and I feel like if I were to, I don't think I can write a paper like that if you ask me to write right now. I think it was because I was new to the topic. I had a very different perspective. And then Mm -hmm. I remember like some of the ideas I was suggesting at the point were like, I don't even think I fully understood what they meant. And it was a learning process for me, but I just felt extremely like lucky in terms of that. Like the ideas I had were like, I could actually translate into like improved performance. And since like, as I said, like, I mean, maybe the reason why it works for other people is because I had no experience like making these things work. So it must be like simple enough to like work for me. So,
3: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I love that simple is good. Like you love the the simple, right? Yeah. How did that paper come about? Did you like have the idea first and then sort of makes experiments or what was the process like?
0: I had this idea that, oh, like. If we start incorporating predictability, it's related to some of the great, great work through base rule. And yeah, I had this idea and was working on it. And as I said, I didn't have that much experience making these things work. So things were going on about a while. I remember reaching out to Sergey Levin with this idea, who was a good famous researcher in RL. And I remember this interaction where... Like he sent out an email and this is like me being very new to research, like to be like, just being able to talk to him felt like a really like nice opportunity. And I remember this interaction where like he like first said, "Hmm, this is interesting, but this is related to this, this, this. Hmm. And then a few days later, like he reached out. I hadn't responded to the email because I was like, I actually, to be honest, I didn't completely understand the email at the time. So he reached out and like emailed back to me and like, Wait, this is actually really interesting. Like, this can be related to this, this, this. And <laughs> I remember that moment, like, feeling very validated because, first of all, like, he spent the time, like, thinking about something I'd said. Mm-hmm. And, like, he, like, appreciated the idea as well. So, that was, that's when I, like, the project came to be about. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the struggle related to the project was just, like, me trying to, like, get something working. But once it was working, it just kind of, like, worked out in like blocks. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really simple to get. An, after, like, I understood the nuts and bolts of the algorithms. So. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you want to walk through kind of the main ideas of paper?
0: So I think the key idea was that there was already this idea in unsupervised learning is that if you try different things in the environment, that can eventually lead to different types of behaviors. Mm-hmm. And this was something that's based off of mutual information-based optimization methods, mm-hmm. and that kind of automatically encodes trying out different behaviors in the environment. Mm-hmm. One of the key observations in this work was that it's a very underdefined problem. So the more inductive biases that you add, probably better behaviors will get out of it. So mm-hmm. one inductive bias that we wanted to add was we should make the behaviors predictable. Mm-hmm. So like any intelligent empowered agent would try to like control the environment in a way that brings about predictable changes, changes that they can predict in the world. So we tried to encode that bias. And there was actually a very, very nice reason why you wanted the behaviors to be predictable because it allows us to do model-based R on top. Mm -hmm. So once you learn those behaviors and you can predict their consequences, you can in a zero-shot manner just directly use the behaviors for any task downstream. Mm -hmm. So this was a major step of prior work where once you learn the behaviors, then you have to learn how to compose those behaviors and that requires additional interaction with the environment. Mm -hmm. But here you can just do things in a zero-shot manner. So this was the reason why this paper came to be. There's an interesting story related with this paper as well. This was one of my earliest papers, to be some minutes of like very new to writing, very new to like review cycles and so on. And once the reviews came back, the scores were exceedingly positive. Some of my collaborators said that they'd never had these high scores <laughs> So at some point, the scores were, I think, nine, eight and seven. It wow so, wow so i was like yeah this is this is definitely going to get in so there's no way like i should be worried about that <laughs> and then i remember just like waking up one morning and like and i got the email saying the paper is rejected what i thought okay this has got to be a bug in the system right like they might have accidentally sent out a rejection email to everyone but it turned out like it was and like it's just one of the annoying things where like i mean after the rebuttal was over they like found something that they've had a problem with and then they didn't give us a chance to rebut. But it all turned out to be well. Like eventually went to Dwight Clear, got an oral presentation there. And like I mean, it all ended well but like like it was a very interesting first paper interaction for me in the sense that like it got really high scores and then it got rejected. there's a lot oh, of highs and lows. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Wow. I've never heard of that happening before to anyone. Yeah, normally it's just like great. Don't say anything. It was good. <laughs> <What are laughs> through. Yeah, don't mess it up.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> really funny. How crazy. On the method itself, you know, you showed some behaviors that the agent learned, like walking and things like that. Where okay. like the method of learning behaviors where you can predict the future states is helpful. Are there very surprising behaviors that you've seen it learn, or weird ways in which it learned something weird? Uh, that you didn't expect
0: yeah so one of the follow-ups in this paper was where we okay decided that we should bring this put this algorithm into the real world so we put it on a real robot and then it's a quadruped so you like kind of expect it to walk a certain way and like most robots are built to like in behave in a certain way Mm -hmm. and when we actually ran the robot experiments it was actually really surprising because you would expect it to walk forwards but it tended to, like, walk sidewards.
2: <laughs> huh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And this is really interesting because usually when our researchers, like, they create a reward function, so they, like, they have their own biases on how they create their reward functions. But mm-hmm. now that you're actually doing unsupervised RL, there's no bias saying, like, you have to walk a certain way. Really? And it just ended up happening with the robot, like, walking sidewards instead of forward.
2: <laughs> so I guess, so, like... Walking sideways makes it like the mutual information like higher or
0: something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it just happened to be like the best way to optimize the objective. So like it learned to walk like sideways in many different ways and different gates. But in the end, we were able to like put together results saying like, okay, it's walking sideways. It's not in our control, but it can still be used for navigation.
3: <laughs> Didn't you even end up putting that in the paper. I think I read that paper earlier today before myself. I don't know if I remember seeing that it, it was walking sideways. It sort of looked like i was walking forward picture.
0: Yeah. If you look at some of the videos, it's suddenly walking sideways and be like, this is like our main result. And it kind of, <laughs> <laughs> we could not skip our main results. So, in addition to that, but it kind of raised an interesting question about how we design our robots. Mm. So, I never followed up on that question. But, like, my hypothesis was that there was probably some flaw in the robot design at the time because in some sense, unsupervised learning encourages what comes naturally to the robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in this case, the robot design encourages it to like naturally work sideways. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's okay. That's not bad in itself. But if we want a robot that walks in a certain way, maybe the design needs to like accommodate that as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this kind of something like suggests related to, again, this is very much related to the empowerment hypothesis, but it's like it's a good objective to like evolve your robots as well. Mm-hmm. Like seeing like certain designs are better than the others, and since this is not task dependent, it's very easy to like. It, it is possible to use this for like evolving robot designs.
2: That's really interesting, huh? And when you say the unsupervised learning kind of encourages what comes quote unquote naturally, I guess in this mm. case, naturally is defined by your like mutual information maximization. And so are the camera is in front of the robot, and now the robot is moving to the side, and it kind of turns itself in order to move to the side.
0: Or, in this case, we were still working from state estimation. So it had, it had some global <laughs> reference saying, like, okay, th- this is where you are. And what would improve the mutual information the most is, like, what causes the biggest change in its global coordinates. Got it. And that just happened to be moving sideways. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So to me, that seemed like, okay, that's, there's something in the robot design which needs to be changed, but, like... In itself, that's already an interesting result, so yeah.
2: Yeah, it is. That's really interesting. I was going to ask if there were other kind of like interesting questions that came out of this, or where did you go after this paper?
0: A lot of what the research I'm doing is very much motivated, (laughs) like came out of like some observations in this project. So a big like reason why I wanted to do unsupervised reinforcement learning was that Mm -hmm. it's truly unsupervised. But it turns out in the process, this is as I, like I was learning about reinforcement learning as well. I realized that it's not truly unsupervised because I, as a human, have to monitor the entire experiment. Mm-hmm. And a big reason for that is actually something called resetting the environment
3: Yay. for the robot. Were you for that? You know, I think it was off. dance. was was yes, that one? Wow. Yes, yes, yeah, that's uh, one. Wow. Did, were you the person who like had to go there like reset the robot every time that I fell over or something broke? And like had to fix it.
0: I tried a few things around, yes. There were other people helping me, but I was doing large, large chunk of that and like we tried <laughs> to come up with like automatic mechanisms where like at some point we had a stick-based contraption which would like avoid me like bending over and picking it out. We tried to like script some of these things, but it would always get entangled in its own wires. <laughs> So yeah, like this this was an address and this thing like kind of like made me reflect that, okay, is what we're doing like truly unsupervised or like because this clearly isn't like so this got me judging into the problem of like learning continually without requiring these extrinsic interventions from humans. And that has pretty much been the line of research I've been developing for the last few years as well. And my goal, and I said, is to like truly get to truly autonomous and unsupervised agents.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about that. I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But first I want to dig into the question of why does no one else have this reaction? Also, if I was sitting there like babysitting the stupid robot could have tangle lens wired all day, like, this is terrible. Watch out with this. Like we need to fix this. How is that not everyone else's reaction? I feel
0: like there's two groups of people, people like in robotics and like who actually dealt with this problem. Like who like immediately empathize, oh, I do not want to do this. And <laughs> it'd be so nice to, like, if my robot is training and I just go out for a coffee or I, like, go oh. and play sports with my friends, like, so I mean, I, I want to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to be, like, sitting there. And this could take days. But there's a lot of people who, like, I feel train agents in simulation.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's
0: a lot of interesting research to do in that end as well. And mm-hmm. maybe that, like, in ease, simulation is extremely easy to, like, call something like can reset and their environment magically resets. Mm. So the pain of human
3: labor, like doesn't like communicate with them. Interesting. Yeah. I guess my question is how come all the roboticists are not like, geez, we need to fix it. Like, yeah. Let's work yeah, on actual yeah.
2: continual learning. Yeah.
0: yeah. I feel like this is like another question that comes up is like, where do we see like robot learning going yeah. and there's a lot of, I feel camps in that, like how to see the future of robot learning emerging. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: there's a lot of people who believe like some real is one way to go, which is obviously like one very feasible way to do this as well. Mm -hmm. And then there's a camp which believes, oh, we should try to do everything in the real world because modeling the real world is even harder than like Mm -hmm. learning something direct. So there's a real world camp as well. And then Mm -hmm. there's a few other approaches as well, I think, which are possible. So I can imagine, like, I mean, you as a roboticist believe that Centurial is the future. Uh, Like, we should do most of our learning and simulation. And I can see, like, why you do not care about this problem right now. Even though, like, downstream, once you're trying to, like, translate to the real world as well, this would eventually become a problem too. But I can see, like, they spent most of their time in Right. Right. Interesting. I guess, how about the other people? I am encouraging them as much as possible. Please try try looking at this problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, once we started thinking about this problem, like, you know, what to do here next?
0: This was a period of learning for me, quite as well, because it seemed like there's not a lot of work on this. Not a lot of people understand the problem. And, like, there's like, I'm trying to solve something which I see as very immediately relevant. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, a lot of people have their own research opinions. So, yeah, I think the first step for me was to actually understand where the problem is. Because funnily enough, reinforcement learning as a framework technically works without resets. There's nothing like that asks you to say like well, you need to do these episodic resets. A lot of reinforcement learning formalism like actually uses this infinite horizon setting. Yeah. So in principle, like all the algorithms should actually work without like. But when you actually use them, they're complete garbage. So like it's, it's like. There's this like funny conundrum. Like, I mean, should I believe the theory or not, or should I believe what I see? And yeah, trying to understand where the problem is was like a big step. And then I started writing. I um, I again like started interacting. I had some ideas. The first paper on this topic was in Neurops twenty twenty one, where yeah. we had a curriculum based approach, which was completely like or more or less without research or without requiring interventions. <laughs> But my understanding of the problem has, like, evolved quite a lot, and it's still evolving, I think. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting problem, like, learning the doubts requiring humans.
2: When you were, you know, just starting to think about this, what did you think, what did you identify as where the problems were? And then how has that changed? Yeah, how does the
3: curriculum-based one sort of work? And,
0: yeah. So my initial impression was that as a reinforcement learning researcher, we often care about maximizing their reward. Which is fine. But what happens is that you can actually maximize the reward without actually learning a good behavior. Mm-hmm. So a very, very simple example is like let's say you want to learn how to close a door. And let's say I give you a reward of plus one every time you close a door. Now, if you see, do not reset the environment or it's like you're learning continually, you would just keep the door closed forever. <laughs> and that would that would maximize your return and like i mean great i didn't learn anything out of it though like you can accidentally hit the door and like it might close down but like you didn't learn anything out of it so how do you actually like learn a good behavior in like such a setting it's pretty hard my recent opinion on this is that we do not actually give on maximizing the return but we okay. care learning about or maximizing the information about my MDP in some sense. Mm. So to me, like it's not clear that whether like maximizing the return would always lead to a good behavior. Mm. But like if I maximize like how my MDP behaves, or how my Markov decision process, or like, just just that environment behaves, that should lead to good, interesting behaviors emerging.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
0: So to like maybe like put more details is like. As an agent, I want to know like where my rewards are high, of course. That is part of the problem. But I also want to know like what taking like actions in certain states gives like leads to. So like learning how the models or how the dynamics of the environment work. How do mm-hmm. I lead to different trajectories in the environment? And mm-hmm. maximizing that kind of information is perhaps more directly related to learning
3: good behaviors mm-hmm. than like maximizing my reward directly. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think I think a previous podcast guest maybe gave a good example. Like for reinforcement learning, you can't really learn how to get a PhD for reinforcement learning, right? Like you get one bit of reward after five years. You could never learn this, right? Like clearly, are doing something else in this case. And yeah, so like, yeah. It's like yeah, it does not seem to be either to be about reward maximization in, in most cases.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're saying we want to maximize how well we predict this NBP.
0: Yeah, or I mean, I. I mean, this is something that I'm completely conjecturing right now. So, like, this is not formal published research. But my thoughts are just that we should, yeah, like, this runs into a problem where you're like, you cannot learn everything about the world. So, you kind of have to prioritize some information. Now, Mm -hmm. what information do you want to prioritize is like the big question here. Mm -hmm. And also, this is related to the notion like, do we really want to learn optimal behaviors or do we want to learn how to just finish a task?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And, Arguably like often the case is that I just want something done, maybe even if it's that optimal. Like if it's good enough, it's fine. Yeah. Especially for a generalist agents that we are thinking about building that.
2: Yeah, totally. One thing that's interesting about humans is that humans don't learn optimal behavior. Humans learn a behavior that works and then continue to use that. Yeah. Humans don't we don't update our strategies very often. So like exactly we like our first strategy we learn, which is quite interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. And in fact, like it's very hard to update. There's almost like an inertia to update our strategies because right. it's expensive to do so. So something that's good enough is like is what we're looking for, and maybe yes. like encoding that in our optimization for mm-hmm. robots would be very very interesting as well. Um,
3: so how do you differentiate between this and model-based RL, which is also sort of trying to tackle the same question, but it, it's slightly different?
0: Right? I feel like for model-based RL, like this is very much. Compatible with model-based RLAMC. So, the question is like, what model do you learn? Mm-hmm. So, I think that's the question I'm trying to deal with at this point: is that how do we get the data for learning the model, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what data do we want? I mean, model-based RL is very much compatible thing. for example, like in an interactive setting, like I do not control the data distribution. Where yeah. like, if I'm in an episodic setting, I run my policy and maximizing my return. I get some data and then I set my dynamics model on those transitions, which is a simple supervised learning problem. But the question I'm trying to answer is like, what data distribution I should be learning from so that I can learn effective behaviors? I actually think model-based RL is a very promising way here because Mm -hmm. first of all, like they can transfer to different tasks much better, but it also like allows me to like hypothetically like answer the question, what is an optimal policy or like, what does a good policy look
3: like? You know that, so, know.
0: I can keep improving my model with the assurance that okay, I can eventually learn a good policy just based on that.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going back to your earlier question, like, how do you separate what is worthwhile to learn in the environment versus what is not? Like, it's very difficult to model all of your all things. How do you yes. know it? and it's fully totally unsupervised setting, no rewards. Do you focus on getting really good at opening and closing that door really fast? Or like, do you really expose some other issues too?
0: So I think even we can like start with like two settings here. Like one is where it's completely unsupervised and Mm. that's an incredibly hard problem. But even if you have a reward function, I think like this is still a fairly hard problem because now you need to learn like, Oh, if I were to like learn how to like close a door, what possible states do I need to like experience to like figure out how to close a door reliably? Let's say as a robot, like I will have to close thousands or billions of doors in the future. And then I need to be able to do those reliably. So mm-hmm. what do I need to learn now to be able to do that in the future?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And there needs to be some assumption about like how this robot is going to be used in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
0: that needs to be encoded into our learning process. And mm-hmm. then it basically needs to, I mean, again, this is all conjecturing as well, but it needs to visualize like or like it needs to like simulate what possible states it might visit -hmm. And it needs to reduce its own uncertainty at the states. Like, oh, this is how things work. Mm -hmm. Again, like uncertainty reduction seems to be like a good objective here. Like, once you're sure that, oh, this is how like this door works and hopefully all the doors in the future work, you can like call it a day. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
0: the key part here to answer your question is that we only want to reduce the uncertainty in the states we're likely to visit. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, that way I don't like want to wonder. I don't know if there's a chair in the room. Like, do a harvest that chair. So I don't want to model that. If I, all I care about is like closing
3: the door, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. it's interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, in a sense, for really general agents, the you want is like generalization across lots of different rewards. Like, if you have a single reward, which is a closed story, yeah, you can get really good at that. Okay, fine, but that's not going to lead to a generalist agent, even and with unsupervised yeah. learning. Yeah, that like you sort of need a bias, like you need a goal a set of goals, but it's like mm-hmm. if Over goals. So it's a distribution of a reward function. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Like, I mean, eventually, like the only reason we have any hope for generalist agents is because we care about a small distribution of tasks in this entire world, but compared to like all the possible tasks we could care about. And hopefully there's some structure to be exploited across those tasks which can help us generalize to those things. Mm -hmm. So once you learn how to like cook an egg in a kitchen. Hopefully you can repeat that in a different kitchen, even though like the fans might be slightly different (laughs) or the cabinets might look slightly different. But at the end of the day, it's a very similar task. So hopefully there's some structure to be explored that can Mm -hmm. enable generalization. And finding what information we require for that or -hmm. what knowledge you require for the dynamics is like in question that I think I'm dealing with right now. Can you say
3: more about that?
2: Yeah. What do you mean? What have you learned about it maybe?
0: I think one simple insight maybe I can share is that if like a human can show you how to do something, Mm -hmm. then you really need to only visit the states Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or you really only need to like know the dynamics or the states around those states that a human might visit. So this kind of like reduces the problem a lot because the entire state space is very large. But if you can like ascertain the dynamics around... Where a human might tend to do things, yeah, much smaller, and maybe perhaps that's where you need to maximize your information.
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. How would yeah. you figure out what states a human might visit? Yeah, that
0: is actually like the chicken and egg problem here, because to know like what states to visit, you kind of already need to know what to do. Right. Uh, that is where like I am stuck as of now, and there are some like some ways you can do that. Like I mean, in some cases, humans can actually communicate through demonstrations, mm-hmm. um, which is a commonly assumed paradigm in reinforcement learning, is that like I mean to show you what the optimal trajectories look like. And then you can like use that to bootstrap the learning. But in cases where there are no demonstrations available, I think that's uh, probably problem that I am not sure.
2: About. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's interesting. It's, it's kind of like humans predict what states humans might visit by watching other humans like animals. Yeah. Like all animals, actually one really interesting thing about animals is almost all animals do social copying where they like observe other similar animals and copy their behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The theory behind this is copying a behavior serves as a pre-filter on all possible behaviors. And so basically like greatly reduces the state space. And this is much more efficient than computing from scratch.
0: Exactly. So we as humans can like serve as like teachers for robots as well. And that me like seems like it's kind of interesting that that might be the best way to teach robots as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that is really interesting. Like, it's kind of, you want to be in a world where there are demonstrations. Otherwise, it's actually quite hard to learn.
3: That's interesting because that really strongly argues for our human-eyed <laughs> robots. Because if you have robots like the quadruped or like some other weird robot, it has no other weird robot premise to learn from, right? It's like, it's just stuck out there on its own. It's like there's nobody who's explored this space like I'm walking sideways how am I supposed to know that I'm supposed to
1: walk <laughs>
2: <laughs> I guess you could make them like copy dog behavior or something right. <laughs> like but still yeah it is restricted
0: there is actually like some interesting work which like takes dog videos and then tries to like map it to like demonstrations I think there's like some really cool work which tries to do bath and which tries teaching like it's just an extremely labor-intensive method to do it, but like you can like teach a robot how to flip or do all kinds of interesting things that a dog might be able to do. Oh wow, <laughs>
2: wow, so, yeah, so, but Chernykh already happening, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> huh? Interesting.
3: I just never had considered that as an argument for humanoid robots. Yeah, <laughs> I was just seem cool. Okay, sure, but there was never like a good reason. This is like an actually good reason why.
1: Yeah, you
0: know, yeah, absolutely. I agree. <laughs> like, I mean, like this seems like. There might be easier to like, transfer bearers from humans to like, human rights, maybe. But then like again, that leads to a problem where like, do we understand human physiology like, well enough to design the guides? So the problem of like what the right robot should look like is a very interesting question in its own right. I also think like since the environments that we live in are designed for humans, the buildings we live in, the roads and infrastructure, the cars we drive, they're all designed for humans. So like humanoids might be a very natural choice in that sense mm-hmm. as well. But I'm open to ideas.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, I used to think like human robots are so annoying cause they have to stand up. Actually it's really hard. So what if yeah. you made to robots, <laughs> <laughs> but then the demonstration data for this is like very complicated because now you have like lots <laughs> of God, human nicks. I don't know. <laughs> also, does it sit in your kitchen? I don't know. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wanted to go back, rewind a little back to like when you were thinking post ads and how you realized like not that many people are thinking about it. And you wanted to first identify where the problem is. And you were like, well, maybe maximizing reward is not the right thing. Like maybe actually you want to maximize the like prediction over this MVP. Were there any other considerations about what problem was important or where the problems are?
0: Yeah. This is something I'm thinking about recently as well. It's like, there's just a lot of problems. There. <laughs> but one problem is like, okay, we need to like learn in a continual setting where like human interventions are not available. And then mm-hmm. what should our learning objectives look like? And mm-hmm. something I'm positing is like, we should try maximizing information. But then where do the reward comes from?
1: Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. another
0: like super, super interesting problem. And like, as I said, like some of the unsupervised RL research I was doing is extremely relevant here as well. Where, like, you try to learn behaviors without explicit reward supervision. But one problem there is that it's very hard to control what behaviors would emerge. And sometimes, like, it's easy to maximize the mutual information without explicitly learning something that we want the robot to learn. (laughs) I think reward specification is another extremely, extremely important and hard problem. Like, how do we communicate? what behaviors the robot should learn. There's obviously a lot of research in Inverse RL and going from, again, like demonstrations to inferring reward functions to, like, going to behaviors. But I still feel like it's a very challenging problem. And then how do you specify thousands of tasks or what behaviors are desirable? Scaling these things up. These are all, like, some challenging problems that I think need to be addressed.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. When you think about this problem, it seems like the question of what should the reward be is also a question of what is the environment and what are the tasks? Mm-hmm. When you think about this question, do you think about it in the context of like a specific benchmark, specific environment? Do you think about it more generally? Like, what are your thoughts on?
0: I definitely like try to think of this question a bit more generally in the sense that the question I always ask myself is like, you want to get to a robot that can like do thousands of tasks. Then what applies in that setting? So, I mean, some of the benchmarks that we have serve like a decent purpose, Mm -hmm. but we got to like have your broader picture as well that, okay, states will not always be available. So you want to like make sure methods are applicable when you are learning from images. Mm -hmm. And in context of inverse reinforcement learning or like methods like which learn, yeah, what is the best way to communicate from humans to like robots is also like an Mm -hmm. interesting problem because... Again, demonstrations might not be the best way or like, how do you provide demonstrations? Like, how do you best use human supervision both for learning and for specifying is something that's very interesting as well.
2: (laughs) Interesting. What are your thoughts on that right now? How do you best use human supervision for learning and specifying?
0: At this point, like for human supervision, like some of the canonical ways I can think of is I either provide demonstrations. There's also a lot of interesting stuff coming around, like which uses the gen, like, progress in Nash language models Mm -hmm. and using the language as a way to specify tasks as well. That seems like a very interesting way because language is an interface that's very, very natural for us. Mm -hmm. And if robots can learn to get task specification through that, that would be really, really exciting. Then goal images are another canonical way to do this. There are ways where you can think about acquiring the expert for a certain action. Mm-hmm. Where, like, if a robot is kind of stuck and doesn't know what to do, like, it's just say, oh, human, can you help me? That's maybe one way as well. My own views are not very rigid on, like, what will win out here. But, like, it's more likely that things that are, like, easy to specify and, like, scale well. Mm-hmm. So, like, the interface of language and robotics can be very, very interesting.
2: In this mm-hmm. 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 That makes sense. Cool. I was going to ask you about some of the papers that came after Dad's. So you mm-hmm. mentioned long-based approach at NeurIPS 2021. And then more recently, you've had, I see, uh, You Only Live Once, which I thought was really yeah. cool. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Did you want to talk about some of these papers and kind of maybe, like, maybe in order of, like, how your thinking evolved from one to another?
0: You Only Live Once is a very, like, experimental paper as well. Mm. It's very, very new and, like, We're still working through some of the details, but like the key idea there is like, okay, let's think of a world where we have like learned robots, which are like generally okay. And like they can do some of the tasks. Now, one nice thing about humans is that they can actually like handle a very long tail of events in the sense that you cannot learn every situation you will encounter in the natural world you will always find yourself in like slightly out of distribution states or things that you haven't learned about.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And this is inevitably going to happen with robotics as well. They have trained it for a certain task and it's deployed maybe in a factory setting or maybe in the natural world. And like, let's think of like a delivery agent and like a quarterback that's trying to deliver your package to your home. And suddenly it finds that one of its legs is stuck in a pit. Mm-hmm. there's something it has not seen before now what do you do like i mean do you call the human for help one notion in reinforcement learning which i was trying to get back earlier as well is that we do not care about like doing things optimally
1: mm-hmm.
0: and like this is something that applies here as well like if you're stuck in the pit your broad goal is just to get the package to the customer
1: mm-hmm. but
0: kind of want to just get out of that pit that you're stuck in so mm-hmm. just try different things and like get out of it as soon as possible <laughs> and that's kind of the motivation behind this work. It's just like try to finish the task you're given as fast as possible. Forget about learning optimally.
2: And so what you did was you had this Q-weighted adversarial learning. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you're using distribution matching where you like look like match to agent's prior experience. Can you explain how it works?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. This is again a very natural idea. Like as you were talking about earlier as well, like humans learn to do something once and then just kind of keep doing it, even if that's not the optimal thing to do. It's mm-hmm. exactly the idea here as well. Mm-hmm. If you know kind of how to do the task and suddenly you're find yourself out of distribution or I don't know what to do,
1: mm-hmm. I kind of
0: want to get back to the states where I actually do know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I just like reason my way there, whatever way possible. And then I'll finish the task. Uh-huh. So this is basically basically the same idea there as well is that you kind of drive the agent towards this part of the state space where you know how to solve the task.
2: Mm-hmm. And so the distribution matching is about matching to a distribution that you know about.
0: Yes, but you're also weighting it by the Q function because Q function tells you how well you know. So a very intuitive idea, a very like natural setting, but mm-hmm. I, this is extremely new because as like we talked about, like most RL works, care about learning a policy sometimes, but this like, this is about finishing a task as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's still kind of good. Mm-hmm.
3: In a sense, like optimizing a policy and learning to finish your goal as soon as you can are like, they should, in many cases, be quite related. <laughs>
0: they should absolutely be very, very related. They're not independent at all. Yeah. But this is about a situation where as I said, like you deploy the robot and then like is your objective to learn the best way to like get out of your pit? Or is it about delivering your package to the customer as soon as possible? So those, in practice, can end up being very, slightly different objectives.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, your other, newer correlations seem themselves better. <laughs> yeah, there's always been something that sort of intuitively brought me the wrong way. about the like optimize infinite horizon discounting future. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
3: Ah. <laughs> That's the hard thing. Yeah.
0: My opinion is like there's a like kind of two problems. One is where you, once you've deployed the robots and then you're trying to like make sure they've finished the task that they're doing, which is kind of the problem setting in you all need once. And mm-hmm. there's the other one where you're trying to like learn really good behaviors. And mm-hmm. the first one is really about like maximizing the information in your MDP. And the second one is just about getting things done. So mm-hmm. to me, like these are like Often like conflated problems in Aura that really? mm-hmm. kind of need to be like dealt with separately.
2: Oh, interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And so chiwal I, I looked
0: right like Quali. Quali.
2: Qualin.
3: Yeah, I think we went with Quail, but like it's it's definitely. Quail. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, Quali is also like a, a name for yeah. Quali uh, just like life years. years or whatever. Yeah. So I thought it was because like.
2: Rhymes with Wally as an answer. Mm-hmm. That's true. It does rhyme with Wally. Yeah. I like yeah. that. So Quail is kind of like addressing number two. Yes. And then Quail exactly. the is addressing number one for deployment. Yes. It's interesting. I saw that the result. I didn't take a super close look, but I saw you evaluated in these four different domains: tabletop, organization, point mass, half mm-hmm, cheetah, mm-hmm. and kitchen environment. And mm-hmm. seems like it performs pretty well. Like better than mm-hmm. SAC better than Gale, which
0: is better than SAC. Yeah. And like, I mean, that's like that idea, like naturally makes sense. And it seems to like translate into better performance as well, because all these prior methods are primarily designed for like learning good policies, Mm -hmm. whereas ours is like focused on like getting the task done. So Mm -hmm. it's very interesting that they still apply to some sense because as like Josh said, that these are related problems, it's not like they're completely inapplicable, but Mm -hmm focusing on what do you want can like give you slightly better algorithms.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you would actually expect that a generally intelligent agent would have like solo each of these components in the agent. Like you would not want to have, just do one, just do the other. Like you do want to make better policy sometimes mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah, run or something. Not.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. And something I was thinking about at some point as well mm-hmm. was that it basically depends upon how often you're going to encounter something. If something you have to do repetitively, you should probably get really good at it. But if something yeah. you expect to like only encounter once in your life, you should probably not care about like being really good at it. And it's something yeah. I feel like you can apply in life as well. Like I mean, if you're fun. sending emails, hundreds of them, you should probably try to get like really good at it. But I don't know if you're stuck in the elevator, or uh, I don't know that I don't know how. <laughs> You don't need to like climb out of it, like just reach for it to be rescued. <laughs> like yeah.
2: Right. Don't figure out how to get out of the elevator from first principles. So, or up. Op- with yeah. an optimal guy. Okay, just yeah. get
3: out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a really good example.
2: I think it's a great heuristic yeah. actually. Kind of like maybe what you want is some kind of alt, like switching between these different algorithms as you mm-hmm. make predictions about how often you're gonna encounter this thing. Yeah.
0: And that's something, like, I mean, I do not know, like, what's the best time to do something, but just, like, a good, like, way to think about, like, which algorithm would be useful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um,
2: How robust is Quail? Is it, like, okay, barely got it to work on these environments after lots of (laughs) hyperparameter tuning, or is it, like, I would totally build on top of this?
0: I think it worked reasonably well without too much tuning. What I think we are more interested in is, like, figuring out, like, Why it works, and if there's something even better than this. Yeah, I think, in terms of like, if you look at the side of performance, I think like there's still a lot of room to improve in the sense that it can still take several thousands of steps to like actually solve the task. What do we need to add in here to make it go even faster is an interesting question. And my thoughts were like, do we need to make algorithmic changes? Do we need to add assumptions? Do we need to add inductive biases about like, oh, mm. this is how things operate? And like, what do we need to do here is a question that we are starting to think about.
2: Mm. Interesting.
3: What was the particular task that it was trained on? They were these four. Are they the ones there's- from from Earl or?
2: Yeah,
0: some of them are from Earl and some of them are from just other environments mm-hmm. as well. So there's Cheetah as well. So, I mean, the general way we were testing this is like we have some offline data where it shows how to do the task. And now like at test time, it's deployed in a setting where something has changed. Mm -hmm. So for kitchen, for example, you want to clean up or tidy up the kitchen and you kind of know how to do it. But Mm -hmm. then the human kind of left it untidy in a way that you have not seen before. Mm -hmm. So you still want to bring it back to your queen. Or for like for cheetah example, you know how to run. But suddenly in your environment, there are obstacles now. So, how do you like run over them and like still reach your goal? So, these are kind of the examples we were looking at. And I think like our method ends up being like fairly decent on all of these. And Mm -hmm. again, another question here is also like there's a lot of different types of changes you can expect in the environment. And we have just like barely started to scratch the surface of this. Mm -hmm. So, like, understanding like what changes this is robust to. And I do not expect to do all this work. That's more or less unrealistic. But like just understanding where it works and where it doesn't, be interesting as well. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Have you gotten a chance to do any of that evaluation yet? Like how to make it solve things faster?
0: No, I would say even this work is like very much in progress. So I feel like our goal right now is to like tidy it up and like finish it up, like finishing up a paper's process. So like maybe the next steps like depend on my collaborators as
2: well. Got it, got it. Fresh off the press.
0: Yes, yeah, so this <laughs> is very much. I wouldn't even say it's fresh off
2: right now. So <laughs> on the press, <laughs> it's on the press. <laughs> um, you mentioned it still takes several thousands of steps to actually solve the task. How does that compare to GAIL or SNC?
0: So GAIL or SNC, like sometimes they're not even able to solve the task. So but if you have a very generous budget and you have like, two hundred thousand steps, in most cases, like okay, can you solve this task? And usually, your task can be solved in like. Less than thousand steps if we did it optimally. So, but like since like the agent doesn't know what's going on, like it will need to figure out like where am I and what am I doing here. So it can like take some more time. So I don't expect it to show on the task optimally, but like how fast? Can that question. I think it generally ends up being like, I think it's twenty to sixty percent times faster depending on the environment.
2: Mm, interesting.
0: So I kind of ended up talking a lot about the autonomous reinforcement learning. So the formalism paper, like what I s- discussed is like, like the two problem settings we should care about. That's the paper where we like, actually put down some of the math and like set up some benchmarks for it, which are basically the two modes of solving. Is like one where we want to solve as fast as possible and right? like one where we'll learn the best way to solve something. My recent work medal is like one such algorithm where, like I already talked about like you only live parts where you're kind of building algorithms for the second mode. But for the first mode, you're building algorithms for how to do best. And metal ends up being like something that
3: does really well. For the metal one, it was mostly if i understanding this correctly. It's almost like there's just sort of two goal conditioned policies. Like one is go back to the way you started, and the other is for where you started, go to the actual goal state. So you just it's kind of like a goal condition RL thing where there's really just two Absolutely. possible
0: Yeah. 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 And I think the key point here is that there's a very, like, a lot of the prior work on this topic has a very, like, episodic way of thinking, Mm -hmm. where, Mm -hmm. like, because we have, like, generally start from a narrow state distribution initial state, and then we try to do the task. A very natural Mm -hmm. way to do this in a non episodic setting is that, oh, let me learn one goal condition policy that solves the task and one which takes you back to the initial state distribution. And so basically, if they're closing a door, you start from the open state at ninety degrees, and then you close the door, and then you learn one policy, which just brings you to the ninety degree state. Our observation here is that, first of all, like it's kind of wasteful to like always completely go back, and Ooh. second, like main thing is that like there's like in the trajectory of the optimal trajectory, mm-hmm. you can actually like learn from intermediate points, and that really? can actually be far more efficient. You learn one policy which obviously tries to solve the task and one which like can put you anywhere on the optimal trajectory. Uh, ah,
1: yeah.
0: got it. And that actually ends up being like much more efficient. Interesting. Yeah. I thought it was a very clever idea very, because up, it allows yeah. you
3: to do, in theory, RL without very many resets, at least, or in theory, maybe okay. I mean, no. no, I thought it was like a very nice way of fixing the like requirement to have these resets.
0: One of the hopes I have is, is that, as I said, like demonstrations have of this, like because we kind of need demonstrations to specify the tasks as well, this is just mm-hmm. one more way we can like use it to boost learning as well. So inevitably in robot learning, you end up providing demonstrations for other reasons, This is just like one another way you can put it together and like, oh, this is another added benefit. So mm-hmm. try to get the maximum out of your human supervision.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also thought it was kind of interesting because if you look at like how humans learn, how infants learn, you'll definitely see this. I'm like take the thing apart, put it back together. Take the thing apart, put it back together. Take the thing apart, put it back. That's yeah. it okay.
2: Yeah, but yeah. not you're putting it apart every time. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You like yeah. take parts of it off. Yeah. But well, like yeah. going back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As when I was younger, like I used to like really like disintegrating pens, um, and then put it back together. So your examples just reminded me of that. So yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's Amazing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: And very specific pens, only yeah. pens.
3: Yeah. yeah, that's great.
2: that's great it's quite interesting this like learning a policy that can put you anywhere in the trajectory it reminds me a little bit of like i don't know if this analogy works it's kind of like backwards goal conditioning where like goal conditioning lets you learn from any goal like where any state is the goal state and this kind of like lets you learn the policy where any state is the goal state or something like that
0: yeah i think this is something that i've used in my prior work actually But this work ended up using something which I think was slightly simpler, which is a GAN-like optimization Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. decide whether a state is visited by an expert or by your boss. Mm. So this is a simple way, like if you can confuse your classifier, then you're in a state where your expert tends to visit. And that's the
3: objective Mm -hmm. for your boss. I love that.
2: Mm -hmm. That's so simple. I love that so much. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the papers, like the core idea, is, is very simple. It's just it's high praise. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: In a very weird way, like a lot of the ideas are simple, but the papers tend to like present them in a very complicated way. And like, I know. it's just an, it's just an artifact of how we like we want to be formal and like related with everything else that exists. But yeah, I mean, that's why like talking to people listening to their dogs and like understanding the works directly from them often ends up much faster. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I completely agree. (laughs)
3: Completely
2: agree. Uh, (laughs) I think
3: one other thing that was sort of interesting about this notion of like going forward and backward with this goal conditioning setup Mm -hmm. is that it is kind of interesting in that most of the things that we do as people are reversible most of the time. In fact, we really shy away from irreversible things. Like, I don't shatter glass enough purpose very often, mm. right? It's like I usually do things like in reverse. Yeah. I know how to go there and back again. And like, it does feel like a really core part of our experience. And am not actually that good. In some
0: sense, it. like, I mean, we build our environments and the infrastructure around us to make sure that we don't do irreversible things. That's why we That's put true. railings so that when yeah. somebody doesn't fall off and break a bone, we construct like these safe environments to make sure like things are reversible. And that's like a nice property to have in your environment.
3: Yeah. It's
2: kind of interesting.
3: There's very few things that are reversible. They need consumption. It's like the only thing that's one sort of fun. Like if you need something, okay, yeah, you, yeah, fine. Okay, I it. But everything else, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty reversible. Hmm.
0: There's things which are like irreversible, right? For example, like spilling water, but then Generally speaking, we try to make sure that we have more water to leave our grass.
3: Right, and right. Back to the right state, though, because the water evaporates. Yes. Spilling yeah. your carpet is much more difficult to you know, go, <laughs> <laughs> <to progress>.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. That's why it's like a much worse thing to do as well, because it's terrible. That's, yeah.
2: That's right. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like safety is about being able to get the world back to the previous state or something. It feels unsafe if you feel like you can't get the world back to the state that it was in or something
0: yeah and the states which lead to states like for example like walking along a cliff seems naturally unsafe because it's very close to a state where you cannot not reverse it
1: exactly
0: so there's a dynamic programming style effect where like states close to
3: our irreversible states also become unsafe
2: that's right that's right that's really interesting
3: yeah i think that's a really good way of thinking about it and it, it just it's so it's pretty easy to estimate and i think one of the really cool things about this is that it's Fully unsupervised. Well, yeah, it's it's fully unsupervised. Like you just need to learn which things are not reversible in your environment.
1: Yeah. Like
3: where is it that you can go forward, not backwards? Great. Then you want to like treat these separately, right? You mm. want to put some railings there. You want to not go near those states. You want to like it's pretty easy to make a classifier, probably. That yeah, long.
0: there actually is some work which does that, and I thought that was like very cool idea because it was actually said unsupervised as well. And I remember that I saw the idea was extremely glamorous, like you measure the frequency of like, or you train a classifier to predict whether this, you went from state in one direction or the other.
1: Uh, and
0: If one direction is like more frequent in your training data, the classifier would predict like one direction. And that would typically mean it's irreversible. But if they're both uh, equally, I
3: thought it was a very clever idea. I had one other question about the variational empowerment paper, which was sort of an interesting paper. It was like, it felt like a little bit of a both, like, an overarching, like, hey, look, like, here's a whole way of thinking about, you know, rule-conditioned URL versus variational power and, like, a little bit of a grab bag of, like, well, oh, there's some, like, some stuff here, some stuff there. But I'd be curious to know a little bit about, like, A, how that paper came about and, B, like, what were sort of your takeaways from this in terms of, like, how do you see these methods relating to each other and, like, your sort of framework and my like, thinking about that, what things are really important for them, et cetera.
0: A lot of my collaborators, Shane Gu, is like, the last author on the paper, I believe, made the observation, like it was a very interesting observation that the way we do unsupervised RL often can be like seen as goal conditioned RL in a certain space.
1: Yeah. And
0: that kind of tells you that maybe these are not as different of objectives as yeah. yeah. And maybe all we're doing is cold conditioned RL in some learned space. And I thought that was a very fascinating observation. And this kind of like led to some ideas which are very common for goal conditioned RL because for goal conditioned RL we can there's this very clever idea of like re-raving really trajectories with a different mm-hmm. goal so yeah. that the same trajectory can serve as supervision for multiple tasks. Mm-hmm. So we kind of wanted to just leverage the same idea in unsupervised RL as well. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. now that we've made this observation, then you can like use the connection to leverage that to build better algorithms. One future work that I hope, like this work, I hope, like maybe like we should have accomplished, or like somebody like should like follow up on this as that said. Exactly figuring out what space we are doing the goal condition RL is is very unclear at this point. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we can learn a representation of our state based on maybe some additional supervision, saying oh these are like some interesting events or interesting goals, then you mm-hmm. learn a representation and then you do unsupervised RL in that space. Mm -hmm. I think that would be super, super interesting because then you would be learning behaviors that might be more meaningful than like the ones you might learn without that supervision. Yeah. This kind of relates to the idea that it's from an evolutionary sense, we have like very strong biases about how we view the world and what we find interesting. It's kind of trying to like put the same bias in there as well before we do unsupervised Mm violence.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. (coughs) Very right as well. Like you, I mean these like goal-conditioned RL things, you're like, oh, that sounds so cool. And you hear the phrase and then you're like, oh, I have some random like state vector or something like that or an image or something. You're like, it's cool. It's still cool. But you think like, oh, like it's going to like be it doing, you know a robot doing what I told it to do. It's not <laughs> really. Cool. You, you do want the, you know, this other like human understandable goal space. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah.
3: Yeah. shit. Yeah. It, it does seem like we're starting to get to something closer to that with like the vision and language models, etc. Like, yeah. we can express, yeah. we want the world to be sort of like this, in a way that's a little bit more disintegral or understandable, or like, related to the things that we're interested in. Uh, yeah,
0: I think I remember this phrase from somewhere. I, I'm not repeating it verbatim, but like, like, language mm. is like our greatest microscope into our mind.
1: Uh, mm. and
0: that's like, the way we, like, learn representations and how we think or we perceive a bundle work. So, like, being able to use that interface to communicate the same,
2: to robots Mm -hmm. would be
0: very interesting as well. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting. Something I'm puzzled by, sorry, this is a little bit off track, but what you Mm -hmm. said about language being a microscope into our, into, like, our thoughts or our representations, something I've been puzzled by is, like, or or not sure how to think about is, humans kind of we learn language and we kind of like evolve it or we generate it. I guess the Steven Pinker hypothesis is like all humans, as come children. Come in
0: with language?
2: Yeah, like come in with the ability to create language. And then we like generate a grammar based on what we hear from around us. And that, mm-hmm. that generated grammar is like the representation structure or something that life we with.
0: Reminds me of this Sabir or Fianna style uh, hypothesis.
2: It reminds you of one?
0: The sapir in hypothesis, which like, language is the substrate of thought.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Pinker says language is not the substrate of thought. As in, like, you can think without language. People do this all the time. Where that, you, like, I think it's with...
0: like, I guess that's the modern consensus in cog I think.
2: Right, it's, right. The, the, that
0: hypothesis was extremely
2: strong. Right, it's <laughs> too strong. And Pinker says instead, like, basically every generation of children kind of like, can invent a language like can invent a grammar. So adults come together from different nations. They're saying different words. There's no like formal grammar. Then the next generation generate the formal grammar combining the words. Anyway, so something I've been thinking about was like, okay, how do we use language to instruct robots? If robots don't have this generation process, like how does the language that we're using map to their representations? Is this, Mm. is there kind of get them doing doing the same thing to like inspect their own representations to end up developing better ones? And that, Somehow it seems important to or related to continual learning is our ability to kind of like use the language to construct and modify our own representations. Like that's what allows us to learn so quickly, but mm. unclear how that works in these agents.
0: That's a great question. I also like don't have any concrete thoughts on this, but like one thing that as you were saying kind of struck me was that maybe like when humans and robots collaborate, they'll make their own language. As well, just like people <laughs> coming together from two nations. But one thing I'm optimistic about is that like, some of the large language models, and like, internet has been great for training these large language models. Yes. So they kind of already have some representations about like how a human thinks. Yes. So this is something we are very fortunate to have. So hopefully we can use those representations to like, communicate some of the task structures we might care about with the robots as well. It like, would be very interesting to see, like, if like, humans and robots could co-evolve the languages so, um. as <laughs> well.
2: It's a really interesting idea. Yeah. You, like, yeah. put some children in front of a robot, and then they'll, like, end up <laughs> learning a co evolve like cool. Cool. Moving on to some other questions not related to your papers. Mm-hmm. Something I'm curious about is, like, whose work has impacted you the most, or what papers have you read that really stood out to you?
0: A lot of their reinforcement learning-related stuff that I've learned was from, like, Rick Sutton's book. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I definitely consider very influential on, in, the like, the thing, style of thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
0: that book, like, strikes the right balance between trying to, like, communicate an idea of being, like, somewhat philosophical feel, at some points, while, like, trying to be, like, practical as well. And, mm. like, caring about, like, whether we can actually do something as well. So, that's mm-hmm. something that's obviously been very influential on in me. A lot of the work in generative modeling and this, generally speaking, with deep learning, has been extremely, extremely influential and something I find really cool as well. Some of my people I've collaborated with are like my advisors, their work has been extremely influential. Sergey Levin and John Seifen, like our two people I've worked with quite a lot, their work has been quite influential on in me. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Any, like, really, like, transformative ideas that you got from any of this literature recently?
0: Yeah. Metal, like, the paper I wrote on ICML, was based off of this idea in the 2002 ICML paper, which argues that the optimal way to, like, initialize an agent is that it's basically, like, how the states a human would tend to visit. Uh, so, this is, yeah. Of course, they do it in a very different setting, and they have, like, very different results, mm-hmm. but like we kind of take that observation and we'll say, okay, a metal is strongly me a good idea as well. So mm-hmm. we take that idea and put it into the non episodic setting. So I think this idea was something that was very influential. Yeah, this is this is one paper that comes into my mind, I guess, right now.
2: Got it. This is a 2002 paper. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I just accidentally happened to like stumble, Uh, or like one of my collaborators pointed me out to that, and then like, yeah, it's always interesting to revisit some of the old papers because a lot of times they've like dealt with the same problems and they thought about the same things, and Mm -hmm. often have very interesting ideas as well that you can leverage. But yeah, there's a lot of work that has been done, so it's it's very hard to
3: like figure out. Yeah.
2: That's true. Yeah. That makes
3: sense. There's, there's a lot of really like it, it's funny. I think well you have one citation from Schmidhuber in 1991 or something like that. I don't remember seeing one of your papers, but like, all these ideas have been thought about a long time ago
2: by Schmidhuber. <laughs> yeah,
3: true. But <laughs> 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 have to be driven, lots of ideas, but it doesn't necessarily work. Like if you think of this idea in 2008, there's no deep learning, there's no reinforcement learning, like yeah. nothing works. Yeah. So coming back to a bunch of those ideas now, it's fine. It's not that the ideas are necessarily all totally new. It's that, like, actually applying in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And figuring
0: out which ideas to use and how to use them is, like, equally important. So, like, there's a lot of value in making an idea work. So, I think there's obviously, like, a lot of people who like to claim that this is something I did back in the 90s, but I feel like those claims are frivolous at best because, like, if anyone matters, is if something, like, works right now or not.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: That's totally true. Yeah,
3: exactly.
2: Do you feel, have a sense of kind of what holds the field back or bottlenecks?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Are you thinking more from like what research topics are understudied or like what if there are like institutional flaws in the way we do research or both?
2: Well. Both, more the former, but the latter definitely. People hate the paper publishing schedule. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, for the latter, I definitely think there's like a lot of topics. And I wouldn't name anything just like, of course, but like, I mean, there's, it seems like a lot of research that is being done, like started off as like well-intentioned topics. And then like some of the assumptions they were making don't necessarily hold true anymore, but they still continue to receive a lot of work just because like there are already groups which are doing research on it. And there's already like, and it kind of creates like an ugly resistance to new ideas as well. And they tend to like keep working on problems, which... If it's unclear if they're relevant or not, so like, yeah. I feel like a lot of human capital is like wasted on possibly research which might not be useful. Of course, <laughs> it's like extremely hard to say like which research will be useful, but like I feel like we can be more pragmatic about it. I'm just I do not know like in the market like where they're like paying customers, like if a product is not used by anyone, that company going sort to of die. <laughs> but if that's not necessarily true for a researcher.
2: Yeah, there. we have like constant research group inertia, basically. Yes, yes.
0: It's hard as well because like certain like folks have been doing this for a long time and they have a set values and set ideas that they believe in and they're like they don't change that easily because humans tend to do the same things they have learned once.
1: Totally, so, yeah.
2: <laughs> if we don't do the awful strategy it turns out? <laughs> yes, yes. Are there areas of research that you think are underinvested or that bottlenecks where you want people to work on
0: them more? I mean, I would definitely think that some of the research I'm doing with people can look into it a bit more. I think that's a very like relevant problem that, I mean, I feel like people haven't realized how much like autonomous RL, which is basically like trying to run with minimal human supervision can like actually scale robotics in some sense yeah, because I mean, they have already seen the success story like played out multiple times. But like, the lesser amount of supervision your system requires, the more it can scale. And like, mm-hmm. it seems like the most critical thing for success of AI systems is scale. Indeed, totally. So what's stopping like robot learning from scaling at this point?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: if we can like create systems which require very little supervision, maybe we can have hundreds or thousands of robots spread across the world just like learning. And then like maybe we can like grow systems which are fairly general. So, like, it yeah.
2: seems. It does seem like the biggest blocker to collecting more, indefinitely more data for robotics is. Yes. Inter- <laughs> yes.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, like, I mean, a one human can look after one robot. Like, I mean, but what if you want thousands yeah. of robots? And like, you're not going to, like, it just doesn't scare around. So, yeah.
3: Right. Right. Mm. That totally makes sense. Are there any specific research ideas that you want to donate to the community where you're like, yo, this would be a great thing to do. We're definitely not going to do any research on it. Jeez, I must all look into this.
0: Some of the stuff I feel like we talked about has actually been like fairly out there ideas, I would say, but like also like at the same time, like things like that are not possible to study as well. So like one idea that I've been curious about is like what representation space we should do unsupervised learning in for like embodied agents.
2: Mm-hmm. And like
0: if there's like a meaningful way to learn the representation space that leads to meaningful behaviors. Yeah, another problem is, like, what are the blockers to, like, steering robot learning? And, like, how do we use human supervision the most judiciously? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we definitely need human supervision, but, like, what's the best way to do it? Like, is it demonstrations? Is it what functions? Is it resetting the environment? What's the best way to, like, do that? Yeah, task specification and inverse reinforcement learning is also something that I find incredibly important. I don't have any specific ideas in that, but,
2: yeah. Do you have any controversial research opinions that other people don't seem to agree with?
0: I'm trying to think, like, in context of, like, scaling and, like, all the recent emergent LRM models and so on. Like, if there's something controversial or something, like, interesting ahead, Because, I mean, actually, like, a lot of the opinions are already out there. So I don't think I have too many new things to say there.
2: Where do you land on it? What are your opinions on it?
0: I think the interesting problem nowadays is, like, we're Mm -hmm. almost at the point where we have, like, extracted, like, a lot of information from the internet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And maybe there's, like, of at most 10x data, like, we just did a lot, but, like, that's the maximum amount of data that's left.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: like, where's the improvements in the model's going to come from? Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about, like, whether, like, we need to, like, infer like, so we're kind of doing, like, distribution and matching
1: mm-hmm.
0: up until this point. And mm-hmm. Maybe this is a controversial opinion, but like prompting is something that makes like a lot of these things work. But I always think of it as a defect in some sense. Mm -hmm. Because if the computer was a person, they would change their opinion based on like what the initial conditions are. (laughs) And for any generally intelligent agent, like that's not what you would want. You want them to have like a consistent personality. And personality Mm -hmm. can be anything. Maybe like, Since there, and this is understandable. Like this is actually, I'm this probably extremely useful when you think about like generative art, where you Mm want to like have diversity and variance. But if you're trying to use the same system in like, I don't know, chatbots, which are possibly like dealing with people or counseling them, you probably Mm want to have like not change their opinion based on like what the other person has said. (laughs) So. (laughs) So that's something, like, I mean, I feel like is an interesting, like, to whether think of, like, this prompting-based things that we have as, like, a feature or effect,
1: Mm.
2: I think
0: is maybe something interesting to think about as well.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah. Like, humans are not good at dealing with super high-variance personalities. Like, that's not a thing we're used to. So
0: Yeah. I I I mean, it would be interesting to, like, find consistent models, even if they're wrong, but at least they're wrong in ways that we know about.
2: Yeah, that are consistent. Some yeah. of this reinforcement learning with human feedback that they do on the large language models that, like, Anthropic is doing, for example, does actually seem to make the personality, quote unquote, more consistent. Like, they're doing RLHF for helpfulness, I think, is the primary thing. Wow. And wow. so then the model does kind of become more helpful as a person. Yeah,
0: exactly. Client. Yeah, this is exactly what I would imagine because right now we're trying to match the distribution and the internet is, like, every human being on Earth and, like, I mean, these are all they're sort of like... Personality. So, like, this is going to be a lot of variance. There's going to be Trump supporters as well. There's going to be Democrats as well. Like, I mean, if you talk to them, you're going to get different opinions. Yes. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, within RL, there's a specific objective. And then perhaps, like, it will lead to a consistent behavior because presumably consistent behaviors are more likely to optimize the objective.
3: Yeah. I think one of the things to me, sort of building on that, and I'd be curious for your thoughts, it seems a little weird about these, is that there is no objectives in a language model, there's objectives for agents, and there's objectives, all the speech that was uttered, that person had an objective when they wrote that, right? But none of those are sort of like at all present in the model. They're all sort of implicit. And the model is never really given an objective. It doesn't plan, it doesn't do model-based control, it doesn't
1: you know,
3: like there's, there's nothing except predict the next token and setting up the context, giving it a little bit of like prompting or whatever helps kind of implicitly like. Yeah, boil it down
0: to the right objective.
3: Yeah, and kind of implicitly put the right objective in there, but it's not a first class citizen in this model. And I think there's something kind of fundamentally wrong with that because it's not optimized for the right objective. It's sort of like your earlier work where, you know, it's like you can optimize for the continual uh, returns or you can optimize for like, just get this, just get me out of the situation or it was like, there's like a good difference to these things and like, and... they both are similar to each other, not exactly the same. Hmm.
0: No, I agree with that. Like, prompting is basically trying to find the right subset of data distribution
1: that would like
0: solve the tasks that you care about. Again, I'm not an expert on this topic, so like, I mean my opinions can be discounted very easily. But like maybe there's better ways to do out there like that like where it's less fickle or like more robust. Mm-hmm. And maybe like some of the reinforcement learning style techniques could like help here. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree with that.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Do you feel like you had any opinions that you used to hold strongly, but now you've reversed your position?
0: I feel like maybe I was a little more theory-minded when it came to research. Something that I do not hold strongly at all. I do yeah. still believe that we should like do good science in the sense of like yeah. testing hypotheses and trying to like understand where something is good or bad, but doesn't have to be very theoretical. But, I again, mean, this is something I don't think I held very strongly either. Something that just evolved over time.
2: Did it change because you feel like theory is not that useful, or because you feel like theory is very hard right now, or what led to that?
0: I think it's more in the line of, like, the theoretical tools seem to be lagging the empirical ones by a huge margin. Mm. And it's just that there may be, like, we're still making progress, mm-hmm. but it seems like a lot of the innovation in the field is driven empirically. And, like, I mean, still based off like intuitions and ideas, which are like very natural, but just like mm-hmm. communicating in a like, formal math seems to be pretty hard. So maybe we'll get there one day. Yeah. Hopefully, like, we can have like something like Newton's laws, but just for like information.
2: Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, this field is like biology and not like physics kind yeah, of field. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Exactly. And that's still, that's fine by me, but like, I mean, like having concise principles at all the steps. You know? Another thing that I think like is like, I used to believe that embodiment is, like, important for intelligence. I'm not so sure about that at no. But I still believe, like, there's so many animals which have, like, intelligence, like, without any natural language, for example. Mm-hmm. And, like, embodiment definitely seems far more primitive. Like, the sensory motor loop
1: mm-hmm. seems
0: much more primitive for intelligent behavior. But some of, like, the recent work in large language models, for example, has been very, very inspiring and, like, They show elements of compositionality. They obviously, which is something I think is quite a big part of intelligence as well.
1: Mm -hmm. So
0: I would be very curious to see how the field evolves and see like its embodiment is. I'm still believing embodiment should be important, but the rate on that has reduced.
2: That's interesting. And when you say embodiment, do you mean like inputs that are like higher dimensional than these? discrete tokens or what do exactly do you mean by embodiment?
0: I think it's the ability to being like able to interact with your environments and um, directly. It's... So basically having a sensory motor feedback loop where you like take action in the environment and then you see the observations change.
1: <laughs>
0: so having that feedback loop seemed important to like right? because that's how like all animals have involved with their in, in like conjunction with nature and everything. And that's one of the sure shot makes me you know intelligence because <laughs> But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if like we can still evolve like in generally intelligent things without that sensory motor feedback.
3: So, I think one way that I've been thinking about it that I'd be curious for your thoughts on is like, it seems like embodiment is perhaps useful for like evolving and creating a system in the first place. But then afterwards, it's not strictly necessary for the individual agent. So for example, if someone is handicapped. They, as a person, can't interact nearly as much as other people. Like, imagine someone's paralyzed, right? Then they don't really get a chance to like, pick up blocks and both, but they still learn about ultimate solidity and physics and all this other stuff, even though they effectively never interacted directly with any of these things. Like, they've done it purely from observation, with no causal intervention, with almost no causal interventions, right? And it's like, can learn a lot. Like, someone who grows up like that, like, they're just as smart as the rest of us. Right, and they have just as much intelligence, understanding, and what's without having any sort of like interaction feedback loop uh, in a physical sense, you get a little bit from language. Like eventually, they'll get to ask someone like, "Oh, can you bring me that thing?" But it's like so limited compared to what we normally think of as embodied learning.
0: But I feel like they have a lot of sensory motor feedback. I'm not just talking about like. I mean, as long as there's some perception action loop that exists, like yeah. I feel like that's still like. And of course, like I mean, I do completely agree with the fact that a lot of that is very critical for evolving the right representations and priors, and mm. maybe perhaps it's more critical there because we already come baked with like very strong priors. But one example that I often go back to is like when I'm learning to play a song mm-hmm. on a guitar, let's say. And to me, like there's not enough natural language or anything which can like exactly describe the process. I have to like go and actually play. And then get the feedback yeah. and then that's the only way like i'll ever like finish learning that song there's no amount of description or text or yeah. anything which can like completely communicate that so to me that feedback loop seems critical and maybe perhaps like some of this might depend on the domain we're applying to maybe some domains are easier to learn without that feedback but and some yeah. of them are not
3: yeah i think another thing i'd say there is it seems like it might be useful in the future for us to split the word learning into a bunch of different things. There's learning in terms of a skill, like learning a skill, like guitar or a martial arts, or golf like golf, it is, as I say, very difficult learn most of the book and somebody who is handicapped is not very good or like from the neck down paralyzed, they're not very good at playing guitar. That makes sense. However, they can still learn to memorize things. They can still learn book things. They still learn about physical yeah, there's like yeah. world. so there's like lots of different things that we mean by learning. So I agree that like that physical interaction. That stuff does seem very difficult to do without any kind of interaction.
1: Yeah.
3: It's just that the yeah, other okay. types of are like, maybe sort of more we'll think of as intelligence of society.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's kind of also like funny in this context that what we think of intelligent in the society are the things that we have solved first with yeah. AI, or it seems more like points to be solved, whereas like things we generally take for granted are things which will likely take longer for us to solve. I think yeah. this is more of a like paradox is something people have talked about a lot where all the things like plain chess, for example, is supposed to be an intelligent behavior, but that's something that's very easy for like computers to do. In terms of like natural language generation is also like easier for but like if you ask a robot to like walk reliably across like the terrain of earth, that's an incredibly hard problem. <laughs> right. So This is something we as humans just take for granted because we can just do it. And some animals can do it at like 15 minutes after birth. So, like, this is something I also find interesting.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I
0: agree. What we consider as intelligence is often like things which are turns out to be easier to learn for
1: computers.
2: Yeah. Yeah, It it feels to me related to like structure or like dimension, low versus high dimension structure or something like that. The real world is super high dimensional, very continuous. And the way that we deal with it is by turning it into language. And so language is somewhat of a compression that's like maybe more structured. And computers are good at dealing with very structured things. And so it could be the case that like, okay, we give the computer this like language, which is lower dimensional, more structured. It's able to learn that structure. It does a really good job actually. But now give it the real world. It's like, oh oh, man, this is like, (laughs) we can't do that yet.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One of the things I'm paranoid about is if we get general intelligences and they're really good at like these digital tasks, but not the physical ones. And now we're going to use humans for the physical stuff, like backwards.
3: <laughs> <laughs> jobs, we robot reset her. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, like oh this my topic. God. <laughs> <That's
2: a> terrible dystopia. <laughs> yeah. It's not good. <laughs> That's well, such I mean, a dystopian fixture. I know. That's why I need to make progress on RL. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you needed some motivation <laughs> or your stuff <laughs> I,
0: i'm more motivated than ever to go back to research right now
2: <laughs> but, have you been a part of any research groups that stood out as being especially effective and if so like what was it that made it different
0: i've been part of like several research groups now and i feel like all of them are fairly like different philosophies one thing i've like noticed is that like, Having a good organization structure is almost good for productivity. Research is often like a very creative, open-ended process and like you have to let people be like figure out, but then it's also like easy to get away from like, I mean, not make any meaningful progress. and mm-hmm. uh, like having some organization to like structure, this is something I should have done by now or this is something I should have achieved by now. Or like, okay, maybe like here are some tips about how to think about something. Am I using my diet productively? The <laughs> research groups that tend to like do that maybe are like better off. But at the same time, you cannot have like too much structure because there's no like well defined structure for like research success. Right. So there's some trade-off there, but I think like having structure is definitely like good to fall back on.
2: And concretely, does that look like like team meetings where people present goals or does that look like, uh, like a one-on-one advisor meeting or what does that look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely has like one-on-one meetings. I think setting goals and expectations every meeting is really nice because like these are things I've done. These are things we discussed and these are things yeah. we should look forward to. Like I try to do this by the next week is something that's really important. Actually, like having like resources and like... For example, one of the things that we try to do in our lab is, before any major conference publications are like, oh, sorry, when we're trying to submit, we tend to have like feedback sessions within our group, which are anonymized as well. So it's kind of how we're getting some feedback before the actual submission. And there's two benefits of this. First of all, like it kind of incentivizes you to finish your paper a little earlier, which is always a struggle, honestly. But <laughs> even... And second of all, like, it gives you, like, some feedback even before you actually submit the paper. So, like, I mean, you can all work on the feedback and then do, like, yeah. So such kind of, like, organizational things can, like, generally be more productive and useful. So, yeah.
2: That makes sense. You said there are different philosophies in all of the groups you've been a part of. Like, what made them different? And are there any similarities? What are the similarities versus differences?
0: I think the biggest difference comes down to is like, whether... It's like bottom up or top down in the sense that like whether the researcher drives his own research and finds collaborators and finishes projects or whether mm. they're part of a bigger team where they like have some pre-specified goals and they all towards those goals. Mm. So, I mean, I think those both of these are like have their own merits and are demerits, but it's interesting to think of like, and different organizations, I would think like research organizations have like different ways of operating as well. Especially earlier in the research career, I think it was very useful for me to have like pre-specified goals and like working with like more structure. More towards now where I'm like more independent as a researcher, it's good to have like freedom and like figure out my own problems. And different research organizations espouse different values.
2: For you, if you were to enter a more top-down place now, like, would you just not do that? Or are there some benefits that you want from it?
0: No, there's actually a lot of benefits because I mean, since everybody's aligned with the goals, so like all the effort kind of gets pulled together. Mm-hmm. And I think in one of the problems with like more decentralized organizations is that like often there's a lot of redundant effort as well. It's mm-hmm. easier to like have wasteful effort, whereas in top-down organizations, this is less likely, but. It more or less depends upon what my goals are and what the organization's goals are. If they're aligned, I think like the top 10 organizations can be more productive. Mm-hmm.
2: Interesting. So, were there any mistakes that you felt like you made as a researcher kind of along this process or any tips or tricks that you've learned along the way?
0: Something that I feel like I've improved upon is not being too attached to ideas. And this is useful for two things because, like, first of all, you're doing science. So, like, I mean, there's it's kind of like good to like not get too attached to them, like, I mean, they might work or they might not work.
1: Okay. And that's
0: the other thing, like, I mean, if you're too attached to ideas, that can make slow-back progress as well, because mm-hmm. you might try to make them work quite a lot, or mm-hmm. you might realize that you have published something and then there are better ideas out there. So like moving on to them, like can be harder as well.
1: Yeah. So something
0: I'm working on as well, I think, like, and I think it's a good, like thing to like incorporate.
2: Do you have any ideas that you thought were good, but didn't work?
0: I think there's been a few ideas, yes. One idea that I feel like that was related to model-based RL actually is this paper we wrote called Discriminator Augmented Model-based RL. And the key idea there was that we want to learn our dynamics model better where we are more likely to visit. And we are more likely to visit where your return is higher. Hmm. This is a simple idea where you like just weigh the transitions where your rewards are higher. And just add it to a loss function. To me, it was very intuitively satisfying. It actually had a very strong theoretical grounding as well. Mm-hmm. But when we kind of actually used the idea, there was not that much of a difference in performance. <laughs> so I was personally very disappointed as well. Yeah, maybe maybe we missed some other element, and in the future it might work.
2: That's interesting. You have any sense of yeah. the model that it learned? Like, did it learn a better model in any way, or was it just seem like irrelevant?
0: Downstream it was very hard to find places where that actually made it difference. we could construct toy cases where it did actually work better. Yeah. But when we started looking at problems to apply to, like it wasn't very clear if that is
2: helpful. That's really interesting.
0: So huh. it's something very intuitively that falls out because yeah, like you want to be more precise where you have higher returns.
2: Interesting. You said there was another one too.
0: I think this was back when I was at Montreal. And this project didn't succeed as much. Really? So the idea here was to like learn a gradient signal across discrete latent variables. If you're familiar with like reinforce, these are generally speaking, very high variance gradient estimators. Yeah. And this is really important. If your network has discrete latent variables and you want will back to propagate through them. So you like reinforces a very high variance estimator. And there are a few ways to reduce the variance, but like none of them are like super good. So. Mm-hmm. This was an idea where we use a neural network to actually learn the gradient signal as well. So mm-hmm. the hope here was that it might introduce a bit of bias because any function approximation is biased, but mm-hmm. it might cut down on the variance because neural networks tend to have low variance once you like tra- start learning mm-hmm. on a signal. So this was we whole hoping like more back from the MEC loss itself. But again, yeah, it ended up being the case that the bias is actually too high. So even it yeah. learned faster in the beginning, ended up like with some optimal performance.
2: I see. Interesting. I wonder if you could switch halfway through or something like that?
0: <laughs> maybe, yeah. It's been a very, very long while since I did here. <laughs> like, maybe, yeah. But I don't think like we had enough results to like keep a draw position, this idea. So yeah. maybe some strategy like that could work. I see.
2: I see. Interesting. Are there any areas that you feel really excited to see develop over the next few years?
0: I'm excited to see like, where scaling takes us, and I'm uh, mm-hmm. very excited to see what prediction models or video prediction models, because that seems like a very natural target where we have a lot of data, and mm-hmm. scaling up compute should like lead to good results, but still a very hard problem, something I'm very excited to see evolve. Text to video models will be very interesting in that as well, mm-hmm. so give a natural language description, and it generates a video for you. and. Yeah, as I said earlier in the podcast as I'm really excited to see like if embodiment is like important for intelligence. And mm-hmm. if we can like if it's just scaling on all the internet data is enough for intelligence. So like this is a more longer term picture, obviously. There's also a lot of cool stuff happening in robot learning, which I'm mm-hmm. like seeing as well as well. It seems like a lot of groups are pushing towards like these generalist robots. Yeah. So that would be very exciting to see as well. Like where do they get stuck or can we get like robust enough robots that we can actually deploy them at homes for example and these are all the things i'm really excited to see
2: that's interesting what do you think are the blockers to general agents that will be solved with scaling
0: and again I'm explaining the question like it's it's very clear like in at least where we have internet substantiated uh, or data through the internet we can actually like, scale up pretty easily and they seem to be very good at performing as well for control and for robotics, it feels like getting the data in the first place itself seems very hard. So, how do we scale that? Is mm-hmm. a very interesting question. Something that I hope like my work on autonomous RLM can also help because we're reducing yeah. human supervision. your question was like, what do I see as blockers to scaling in general?
2: No, um, what do you think are blockers? So, for example, you know, a human is pretty good at reasoning, and scaling up these models seems like reasoning gets a little bit better, but not that much better. So. Um, Will get automatically solved Get Some attributes of general agents will automatically get solved with scaling, but which attributes will not get automatically solved with scaling, do you think?
0: I'm curious to see your reasoning. Actually that's a very really good example because yeah it seems like some of the if you looked at the Minerva models from Google, I was very impressed by like some of the results because it seemed like they reasoned and made mistakes which is very similar yes to humans. And it seems like that would be an interesting space to see as well whether I think a true Best would be to see like if generally intelligent agents can like come up with schemes or solve any problems better than humans, like mm-hmm. better than any human. Like I'm not like math problems that we're testing high schoolers upon, but like better than any human. So I mean, we already have examples in terms of games, but it'd be interesting to see in other domains as well if that emerges.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So that's some of the like, interesting stuff. So let's see like in the field that evolves, are there any sort of like a little bit longer term, like any other risks that you're sort of worried about or like, what is the, both like the positive and negative things that you kind of think about in the slightly further future?
0: I was recently reading about some of the work done by chemical engineers in like early 20th century. And it kind of reminded me of machine learning because those technologies were also dual use at one end. They were used for making fertilizers, which ended up being like really useful for agriculture. But at the same time, they were also used for making biochemical weapons. So I definitely expect, like any relevant technology, to have like dual use applications. So one thing I'm actually concerned about is automation. As are the second order effects of like how do we keep the society engaged? If this is extremely downstream, and this depends upon how like this works out, I can also mm-hmm. imagine a future where like automation, like automating some of these menial tasks or things we do not want to do or actually creates more jobs because where humans are able to focus and do things which they want to do. But I can also imagine like for example autonomous driving could potentially like remove a lot of jobs. And like automating different aspects of human life. Can be like still have a stable society? Mm-hmm. Is something that's interesting. I'm not too worried about like worried about like an AGI like taking over and killing humans or any of that kind of stuff. But I definitely think of these like second order kind of things where like functional and stable societies would be interesting.
2: Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. I always think about Burning Man. Like at Burning Man, no one has jobs, but people do all sorts of really <laughs> things. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, all but well. if Burning Man was your entire life. <laughs> that
2: would be awesome. <laughs> like, Create experiences for other people, all your needs are met. You like reach your creative potential. You can work on science. You can work on other meaningful things. Whatever you want to work on. Yeah. That's
0: very cool. Yeah, maybe like it depends upon like I guess and burning Avalon is a great example because but it also filters for a very like select set of people who are maybe motivated to like create experiences for other people. Mm-mm. But when that happens at the scale of like the entire countries, then like what,
2: I, what does that look like? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah.
3: I think it's an interesting question that we'll have to address someday, sooner or later, right? Like as we make more and more general agents, that just yeah. means more and more tasks. At some point, like our capability is sort of our like rounding error, approximately So people. Yeah. Like, I mean, a Years from now, maybe that's a thousand years from now, and eventually, you sort of get to that point, right? And what that, I think it's kind of an open question right now.
2: This is really fun. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, this, this was, was great. this Thank was
0: an amazing conversation. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N. And our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time.